like to invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. I'm so pleased to bring you a guest today, the first one in the nine-plus years of this program who's located in Vermont. And I want to remind our listeners on the many stations where this program is syndicated that you should always feel free to contact me with likely Song of the Soul guests from your area because we always love to feature locally relevant folks. Today we have a wonderful musician and poet, Chris Gruen, from Plainfield, Vermont. And because Chris is deeply connected to the natural world, it's not surprising, perhaps, that he's married to an organic farmer as well. You're going to love the evocative weavings of Chris's poetry and music and his deep reflections on life, learning, and relationships. And he'll have so much to share that I guarantee you that you'll need to visit northernspiritradio.org to hear the bonus excerpts, including a song that we can't fit into this broadcast. But right now, let's go to the phones to speak to Chris Gruen for today's program. Chris, I really want to welcome you to Song of the Soul. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Mark. You came to me via one member of your listening community out there for WGDR. He told me that in addition to the fact that you're a wonderful musician, you're also station director for WGDR. How does that come about? Is that a complementary function to being a musician? Yeah, I'd say I'm very, very lucky. And the two pursuits have intertwined really nicely. Great thanks to David Allais, and it's who you kind of softly mentioned there as the person who connected me with you. He was also a professor of mine when I attended Goddard back in 92-93. And did you share music with him when you were a student of his? Well, you know, I wasn't at all a musician back then. I didn't start writing songs until the very, very end of my Goddard college career, and then really not until a year or so after I graduated in 98, 99. But he and I have since then, we've shared a stage recently in celebrating the college's 150th anniversary, and we played a traditional Goddard song together from the archives, which was really exciting. I think Goddard College is an interesting institution. It used to be a residential college, as you said, 150 years ago. I mean, it's been around a while, but it's got an unusual format. Could you explain what it it does, how it works? Yeah, sure. In 1863, it was chartered as a universalist seminary. It was called the Green Mountain Central Institute. But the actual incarnation of Goddard that we know today was started by Royce or Tim Pitkin in, in 1938 and moved to the Plainfield campus that we know here in central Vermont now. 
it was really Tim Pitkin's vision for independent study, a very progressive education concept that gave Goddard its reputation as a leader in progressive education. Tim believed that everybody brought their inherent wisdom and learning style and teaching style to the world and so deserved a a very unique study path of their own. And there's a history now of many people flocking to that philosophy. The school has always been small. The campus program has always been two, three hundred people at most, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less throughout the years, and close to a thousand in the master's remote study. But in right around 2000, 2001, the campus program closed, and Goddard became a college of about 10 to 12 programs, two undergrad and about nine or 10 graduate programs that were all remote study with intensive residencies twice a year. So the campus fills with its students for about eight days during a residency and then empties out again. And it took a while for local folks around here to understand what was going on. Uh, there was rumors that Goddard had closed, and it never did. But I think that we're now re-explaining ourselves to the external communities and have gotten strong again in this new form, in this new model. I also noticed that there's Goddard College over in Washington State. How does that work together? Well, we, it's the same college, and we became bi-coastal a few years ago and spread to Port Townsend, Washington, and Seattle. So we've got two, three campuses now. Really, the two main campuses are Plainfield, Vermont, and Port Townsend, Washington. Students can study uh, programs at both locations, or they can choose to study in one of either of those locations, same programs, different places. And Port Townsend is a beautiful place to be. You know, We offer a sanctuary here in Plainfield, Vermont, in the mountains, the Green Mountains here, and then we offer a different kind of sanctuary in Port Townsend, both really inspiring place to steward a deep educational practice like the ones that Goddard offers. I think some more of this is going to come out as we do your interview. So let's get toward your music. So Chris, start us out for your Song of the Soul. Where do you want to go first? I think we're going to start at the beginning, which it's kind of the beginning. The first record I ever put out officially uh, it was called Lullaby School, and it was the first record on the label that I'm on, which is called Mother West. This first record was really inspired by some amazing neo-folk folks that I was really into at the time, artists like Sufjan Stevens and, and Iron and Wine. So it was really, it lived in the whisper folk genre. Only a few songs were more fully produced with rhythm sections. The majority of the songs are all very intricate, syncopated string melodies and stacked harmonies with a very clear lyrical lead. I came to music from a study of poetry, so my music's always been inspired by the word and power of a poetic line and the symmetry of a fully uh, realized lyrical body. So. These first songs are going to come from that record. I think we're going to start with In the Clearing off of Lullaby School. And uh, this is a beautiful love song about accepting the benefit of the end of a relationship and ending well as friends. Passes. 
healing of dusk just like you give me your fingers learn to say goodbye it's the end of the day there's no more time to the song is In the Clearing, and as Chris mentioned, it's from his first CD, Lullaby School. You can find Chris Gruen on his website, chrisgruen.com. Chris is with a K, K-R-I-S-G-R-U-E-N.com. Again, you can always find links via nordenspiritradio.org. In the Clearing, though, is the song a lot about nature there, Chris, and one of the things that I was wondering, I mean, you're a Vermonter now, and I guess you didn't start writing songs until you were already in Vermont, but you're a New York City boy. That's right. I was born in 1974 in uh, New York Hospital. Came home to the West Village, to Beth Hewn Street, to the same apartment that my father's living in today. The thing is, though, is that both my parents were lovers of nature and very much, you know, hippies in the, in the day, but city metro hippies. <laughs> They were politically active, and they were deeply involved in powerful art movements at the time. And But they would always, always relish getting out into a natural setting or a, a camping trip and had good friends in Catskills in Vermont. And so I had many meaningful, early meaningful experiences as a young person in, in nature. And then... When my parents split up a few years later, my mother moved us up to Connecticut and eventually to a farm in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is almost an oxymoron by definition. <laughs> uh, I should add a working farm in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is the real oxymoron there. And, and then from Greenwich, Connecticut, we moved up outside of Woodstock, New York, to a real mountain retreat in between Phoenicia and Hunter, New York, if folks know where that might be. But that's like a a mountain reserve out there where I really solidified my need for engagement with the natural world and wilderness. I was deeply inspired. You know, this is the place where I first really appreciated 
what one can do with their experience of society, you know, having been born into a major metropolis like New York City and learned without realizing learning it, but just learned relationship uh, with others. Just you get this counter reflection. You go out into, you sit by a, a mountain river and you can reflect on your busy life and something else is afforded by that. Something else about relationship, about the people in your life is afforded. An understanding of that, an, um, an appreciation of that is afforded when you are able to go and be without it. And it became the, the foundation for my artistic practice, which first was writing and then music later. You said you started from poetry. Have you been a person to journal or keep diaries or however you describe it? Yeah, I did that for years. I'd say I really started writing when I was about 11, 12 years old and felt as though form was always available, like an understanding of form was always there for me. When I first started, I understood what it was to kind of advance a written piece toward offering it to others. Like I would write as it would be heard, so to speak. So I always wrote with, with the hope to be able to share something with other people. It wasn't even when I was writing in my journal, there was an act to support the eventuality of sharing something meaningful with others. So, yeah, I, I started journaling young and then went through high school keeping something of a, a writing practice. And then at the end of high school, came to Goddard with writing as a focus for myself. I'm very proud to say I was barely an amateur poet when I graduated Goddard because I think, you know, <laughs> going in to Goddard, I would have hated to give myself the term of amateur, but I came to realize enough about what writing a poem really means to be very excited to start to see a couple of small publications of my work and fell in love with the practice of writing poetry but always heard the musicality in it. I, I was, you know, what I haven't gone into with you yet is the deep saturation I had as a young person in world-class music. So while I never had a formal study of music, it was always in my blood and bones, and when I started writing poetry, it started to come back to the surface. Well, give us some more of your music. I'm sure we'll wend our way over to your musical background. Okay, great. Let's listen to Further Down. Here's a song off of Lullaby School that is a little bit more produced, has a rhythm section, and picks up. And where does this come from? What, what's this about? Well, like I said, you know, I'm always written with the hope that it could be appreciated by someone else, um, even though these early songs are often more cryptic. Uh, Further Down is pretty direct, and I think it talks about the idea of processing difficult transitions or, or just accepting challenges in one's life and celebrating the work of getting through it. It is Further Down by Chris Gruen. It takes no time to begin again Just stay away from where you've been The moon will rise at a half past seven It takes no time to begin again no time to heal the past Just remember where your heart was last The sun sets early but the moon she rises fast It takes no time to heal the past And in this work we're not alone The whole world is out to find Down the line, mm -hmm. move us further down the line. 
simple steps will serve just fine. Down by Chris Gruen. It's from Lullaby School. His first CD released back in 2007. Takes no time to begin again. It takes no time to heal the past. Are you a believer in that, Chris? Yeah, I am. I, my mother is, is a holistic therapist and a spiritual teacher. My father is an artist and everyone in my family shares a philosophy of meeting one's darkness, so to speak, and growing from being very open and honest and not being afraid of one's pain and learning from it. So my experience is that it doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out process that we never heal from the work of dealing with places that have become weak for us based on our earlier years or misconceptions, but that can be immediately transcendent that, you know, facing it and working through it. That's what that song is really about. It's kind of bringing the places that that are weak in ourselves along for the ride, the hero's journey. It's not about cutting that stuff off and showing up, you know, like a chiseled soldier, but carrying our wound with us as we kind of face the world. I think you do have some literature background there. I can tell the hero's journey, all those phrases are things that I was not a literature major. I had a few different other majors. One of the things I was wondering about is if this has a name, if there's been spiritual circles that you've sat in. You you mentioned your mother's a holistic therapist and Goddard College has Unitarian roots. Are those circles you sat in or profit from or is it all like individual and self-help books? I never read many self I mean, I would say that the most profound self-help books were the powerful journals of poetry that I read and, you know, studies of mythology by Joseph Campbell or Eliad, you know, or studies of philosophy like Jung and Freud and ancient Chinese philosophy and Confucianism and the Tao and, the, and, the, and Monkey and things like that. But no, I, I would say that I quickly was able to, it was more about hands-on work because I started a spiritual practice as a young person. Uh, my mother was involved in a community of uh, spiritual students called the Pathwork. Being involved in that group afforded some first-hand experiences to spiritual practice, you know, uh, that didn't have much to do with reading, but had to do with relationship and group work and practices like breath work guided visualization, things like that. And for a young person, I can tell you, it might be the best <laughs> might be the best service that that work can give because there are fewer blocks in the way and there's less self-judgment there. You know, it's just more exploratory, experimental, and instantly you can implement the results so quickly because there's less of a story to get in the way. 
So as a young person, having those experiences quickly gave me the ability to see poetry for the wisdom and the spiritual work that's involved in the artistic practice. And you could see the work of all poets in their writing if you have that background perspective of a, of a spiritual practice. It would be hard for a finished poem to carry any clear and explicit language about the work of transcending pain or, you know, of dealing with an old wound. But underneath the metaphors, that's what it's all about. Of course, the magic and the art is being able to craft lines that look like the miraculous and the mundane. You know, I think that's the work of poetry is to make the mundane miraculous and, uh, and show the, the deep potential for celebration in every moment of the day. The prayer walk is a very good example of, well, getting as close to the line as I might have. I don't think I would even get as close to the line of kind of coming outside of the curtain as the poet coming away from the curtain and being completely clear about here is my spiritual practice, here is the process, here is being doing it, and here's the language describing it almost technically. But I tried to be as artistic as possible, and yet, see, some of these songs in Lullaby School are almost instructionals. Further Down is, is almost an instructional, you know, Prayer Walk is almost an instructional of what it looks like to kind of dive into one's um, unfinished work and use it as, a, as an opportunity for growth. Um, so Prayer Walk, I think the real art here is in the music. It's music I'm really proud of.
Chris Gruen can be found on the web at chrisgruen.com, K-R-I-S-G-R-U-E-N.com. That was Prayer Walk, and Chris joins us today for Song of the Soul. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org. That's O-R-G like organic, not C-O-M like commercial. On that website, you'll find more than nine years of our programs, both Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, free listening and download. You can also find links to our guests. So if you forget how to spell Gruen, you just come via northernspiritradio.org. You'll get there. There's also a place to leave comments. We love two-way communication. Please speak up. Say what you like, say what you don't like, and where we could be going. I also welcome suggestions of guests for my show, just as this one came to me via a listener of WGDR. So you could be contacting me, too. I especially love to feature guests who are from the local areas where this show is broadcast. So if you have ideas, please let me know. Also on the website, you can click the donate button and there's an address you can send contributions to. That is how we fund this program. But even more so than that, I urge you to support your local community radio station. They provide a slice of music and news that you get nowhere else on the American landscape. So start out by supporting your local community radio station. That includes listeners out at WGDR, but also at Lopez Island, KLOI out there, and many other places across the U.S. where this program is broadcast. We've got Chris Gruen here today for Song of the Soul, and we just heard his song, Prayer Walk. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So does that mean that you, Chris, are one of those absolutely fearless people? Is there nothing you're afraid of that you can admit on the air? <laughs> no. I, of course, I would say that in that song, I'm speaking to myself and, and trying to do the work that I'm suggesting personally. So the song is almost like a, a support structure for, for me, and I imagine would be a support structure for others because I really believe we share so much of the same work. But I really believe there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And I've benefited from facing fears of mine enough times to know that when I come to the next one that it will benefit me again to not avoid it but see what I can do to to face it and incorporate the good that comes from getting over a misconception of the way life presents its opportunities. What I love about that song is that in those moments where it's suggesting bravery, the music is suggesting a, a high tightrope walk. You can almost you hear the music climb up and kind of be in this rarefied but dangerous feeling air a little bit. And that's why that's what I'm proud of in that song is that, and that's what music can do for poetry is you counterpoint and you can create a second level of metaphor that way, where the the voice is saying don't be afraid, but it can barely get the word out because it's so falsetto and so far away from its comfort zone. You said earlier, Chris, that you didn't really do music or anything till you know, it's like at the very end of your Goddard studies. Did you not learn instruments along the way? What was your exposure to music? Didn't you start out by learning the violin, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star? No. I was born into my parents' profession as visual artists and active, I would just say activists in the art scene in New York City and the early to mid-1970s, and they'd been at it since mid-60s. So my mother being a filmmaker, an early filmmaker, and my father being a a rock and roll photographer from his mid-teens on, and quickly the both of them getting involved with 
the world's biggest names. You know, uh, my dad's career kind of launched when he started working with Ike and Tina Turner, and my mother was working with him at the time, and they became close affiliates and friends with Ike and Tina, but quickly spread to other major bands and major artists like John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and my mother working very closely with them as an assistant, and my father being a personal photographer of theirs for a while. But they were working with it, with others, you know, and they managed the New York Dolls. So in no way, um, it, very popular arts, but not safe arts either. Like you know, like New York Dolls were ex- extremely experimental, and were not just early pop punk rockers, but you know, really challenging everybody's idea of what's okay by cross-dressing as powerful, attractive women and doing it really well. You know, David Johansson being able to walk through the airport in high heels better than a lot of women could in the same size heels and just really powerful, you know, social and political stuff going on. That's what they were attracted to and that's what the energy was that I kind of came into. So not just super, you know, Joe Strummer and the Clash, Blondie, and, and all these bands just being kind of the background for those early days for me as a very little, little little person, you know, two, <laughs> three, four, or five years old, you know, walking into Max's and CBGB's and getting slammed with that rock sound and incorporating it as, oh, this is what's, what's different about this. I didn't know uh, until later that this was anything unique for a young person to have in their life. And so music and art was, and, and on the other side, I started to digress, but on the other side, my mother's father was a fine arts producer, so major visual art painters in the background on the other side of my early years. So my assumption was that this is some of the most powerful and important Art is very, very, very important, but it's for others. It's for other people to do. Because as a young person, how could you even imagine being able to go from doing nothing about it to matching the world's greatest at it? And so for me, it was always, I had this deep understanding, maybe comparatively to my friend, of what arts were and maybe some of the background process. But I always assumed I couldn't do it because the best in the world were doing it in front of me in their pajamas, and I just never saw that I was going to be able to figure it out. <laughs> so it wasn't for a million years later in my mid-20s that I finally gave myself the right to give it a try, and, and it was kind of unavoidable because it was just bristling under the skin. The next song that we should look at is from the second record, this song, Memoir, and it's kind of a bittersweet ode to those early days. The music is a little bit more punk in energy than I normally go to or did in those days anyway. And the dialogue is with those early days where I was navigating a very dangerous and exciting landscape of, you know, drug-abusing creatives in the West East Village of New York City and considering them my community. And the song is Memoir, again, by Chris Gruen. I remember all their names, the pirates in patches, stars inside the flames on the end. Of their matches, trolls under the bridge in the basement, junkie pads where I follow them underground, and the lights that hang are so so sad.
Chris Gruen, off of his second CD, Part of It All. Find the links again on chrisgruen.com, K-R-I-S-G-R-U-E-N. And memoir, it's quite a powerful story that you've got going there, Chris. The idea that you're kind of rubbing shoulders with people like John and Yoko and other such folks, I mean, that's stratosphere stuff. I could see why you would feel daunted and even scared by it. I mean, did how much drug abuse did you see? Part of my experience, and I'm 60 years old, so you know I'm almost 20 years older than you, is that a lot of those people, the greatest lights, burnt themselves out in their 20s and 30s and were gone, dead. Right, right. Well, you know, as much as well, we should definitely separate. We don't, you know, we don't want to like, give the wrong impression about particular people. While John definitely ex- experimented with his fair share of substance abuse, it never was. It never. I don't think it ever owned him. And I didn't. I didn't know him in that capacity at all. It, I'm just turned 40 now, so my experience of John was more of like the dad in the room. I would have a play date every once in a while with with Sean, his second son, his son with Yoko, and I was always more aware of Yoko, but then I do have memories of John as being like the dad at the house, you know, in his kimono and his ponytail walking around 
And he, at that point, he really leveled out, and his focus, his concern was about the incredible gratitude he felt to be lucky enough to have navigated his way through what he had and arrived at a real family experience and to have a real relationship to practice life in inside of. He was a, a beautiful, beautiful humanitarian in that way. And he would tell my dad that, right before he died, that his next work was about going around the world teaching people about the importance of relationship in this way, this this romantic relationship and this relationship with a family. And it really it chokes me up talking about it because that's where I think I've always hoped for the same thing, that if I was going to be able to take music and, and, and a popular relationship through music seriously, that I wouldn't give up my health or the health of my relationships or the opportunity to have a family as a result. And that's kind of where I'm focused these days, you know. You said that your dad still lives in the uh, same apartment that you experienced way back then. And your mom, you described her peregrinations through much more rural areas. How long did you actually live in New York City and how much of you is that? I was pretty much finished living full-time in New York City by the time I was five. We moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, which is less than an hour commute away, 95 pretty much out of the city. But, you know, my father was a constant in my life, uh, visit with him every three weeks or a month or so. And my mother and the work that she was doing with her father, as I was saying, fine arts, we had a, an office in the city. So, And my mother's second husband was a world-class jazz musician, Joe Beck, and he worked every day in the city. So even though we were living in Connecticut, New York City was half, if not two-thirds of the week. When I wasn't in school, I was going down there for whatever reason. But there was this real clear commitment to being connected to those lands and those engagements with land outside of the city. My, Again, going back to my mother's second husband, Joe, his spiritual practice was when he wasn't being owned by a tour or a project, he would start a farm. Before he met us, he was playing Madison Square Garden, and then he would disappear. <laughs> At the end of the tour, he would disappear for nine months to upstate New York and run a 60-head dairy cow milking operation. So this balance, this, I don't want to call it escape at all, but this balance of spiritual practice being something that took us out of the metropolis and out of the intense art scene was an interesting one, to say the least. There was almost this conception that if we are going to be quiet or peaceful and available to ourselves, it's going to be away from any kind of arts practice, you know, which can be the opposite for the majority of people, I think. But, yeah, that was the case. The natural world has been important to my family, for sure. My father, living, as I said, in West Village, New York City, he's the first one to take the opportunity to get out when he can and, you know, drive up to the country and, you know, embarrass his six-year-old son sitting in the car, jump into the first creek you could find naked in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, they, and, you did uh, say they were hippies, right? So. He's a hippie, you know, and he would never, ever call himself that. You know, I'd say... If he was going to call himself anything, I was a beatnik before I was a hippie. But he's really just, he's a civilized man in that way, which is to try and find the most enjoyable and at the same time peaceful thing to do and, and relish it. On your website, you've got some pictures of you at age, I think, two or whatever it is, two or three, when you must be going to school there. And there's a man with you 
with a kind of an afro hair. That would be him. That would be him. Okay, he was a hippie. He was a hippie. Forget it. He, yeah, he was, <laughs> but you gotta you gotta admit he was oh, he was beautiful too back then, and you know he had the great blend of punk and hippie going. I mean, he was one of the early punks, even though he wasn't on stage. He was real close, you know, and climbing up there with bands like the Ramones and getting knocked around and taking those shots that completely it infused the energy of the moment in the photograph. That's what my dad's gift was. It, they were grainy and sometimes a little out of focus, but instead of the technical perfection, you got the head state. You got the smell in the room. You got the sweat from the band on your face when you're looking at those pictures. So he was really a punk even before it was punk. I mean, you know, when Dylan was inventing punk and before that, you know, when Guthrie was inventing punk and before that, you know, punk energy that existed everywhere, he's always connected with that jazz had it too you know like what do you got to say it's great that you can play but what, what are you what are you going to say you know what do you have to say and so even though he, he's got the hippie in him he's really political and socially motivated so i i i defend this idea you know as, as if the hippies weren't political and they very much were but i feel like they have this kind of hazy characteristic that also associated which i don't necessarily attribute to him you know, the pictures I saw of you with him, I realized where I saw them, they were in your video that you did of Red Doors. I was kind of surprised because I was looking to see your mom. I guess I did see a couple pictures of her in there. But in your song, Red Doors, you say that your mom dropped you off each day at school. Right. But it right. looks like to me like your dad's there with you. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, what was the line? Mom dropped me off every day at school, but then, you know, when Dad left the moped cold is the lyric. So it was pretty much a 50-50 thing in those days. You know, my dad used to ride me around the city on his moped, and that's what that reference was. So it was like on days my mom had me, she was dropping me off. On days my dad had me, he was dropping me off. But the red doors are still there, and we went back to make the video, that, that little church that was my school when I was a very young person, uh, right near Washington Square Park in the West Village. But those pictures you're seeing, I mean, a lot of those shots are taken at huge stadiums or in maxes or in CBGBs. Uh, we're just lucky to have some of those images. It's great. Let's listen to it. It's Red Doors by Chris Gruen. Mama dropped me off to school. When I was two years old, she walked me every day. Dad left the moped cold. Each block mute and bland, compared to school's red doors, announcing I'd arrived where I belong. Nineteen seventy-six. I'll wait here all day long.
I remember small brown glass, doll-sized silver spoons on chains in the street. You made me leave them be. But I pick 'em from the curb, rare shells from the sand. I see a glass of spoon. You saw I washed my hands. 1976. I wait here all day long for you to turn your tricks. Heartbreak. Is on part of it all by Chris Gruen. Follow the link from NordenSpiritRadio.org to find Chris Gruen and more of his music, any of his three albums that you can get a hold of. Again, that song's talking about youth. In 1976, you're a couple mm-hmm. years old, and your hair is trying to imitate your father's afro. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't had enough time on the planet to do it yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you described what Lullaby School, where it came from. Part of it all, you had a different theme or a different orientation going into that CD. Well, you know, I the thing is, is that as a poet, I had a lot of time processing my ideas alone in the quiet, and now also up in the you know the woods of Vermont. And so the first music that I come out with is is quiet and introspective. And as a musical study, is looking to West African griots, you know, playing the kora or the thumb piano. That's where I started to fall in love with the process of songwriting, as far away as I could possibly get from the clubs where I learned about music for the first time. Explosive electric guitars, huge bombastic drums. Loved them, but didn't feel drawn to start anywhere near them pushed away from the practice of music because feeling like, oh, there's no way I could learn how to do this right. So for me to get close to music, the first place I went to were the lullabies coming out of Joffrey Ariema's songbook and picking patterns. So like not even strumming the guitar, but just picking the strings. And that's what you're hearing a lot of on Lullaby School. But the truth is, is that, you know, the more comfortable I got at performing my ideas musically, the more clear it became that I had an ability to rock it and to really put together a powerful pop, punk, pop, whatever kind of song you want to call it. And I think I'm getting still getting closer to allowing myself to make that record. But part of it all is embracing more full rhythm section production, although in a lot of cases still super alternative, like trying to stay away from the influences of punk rock music and using more of the influences coming out of African music. And I had a great partner in that, in my younger brother, the son of my mother and her second husband, Joe, also deeply involved in music. He's a tremendous producer and and piano player, and he produced part of it all. He's the first producer on that record. So he and I are both inclined to think of very alternative approaches as pretty clear and obvious, you know, and everyone's like, no, this is not clear and obvious. This isn't straightforward. That's where you're hearing some of the weird time signatures and songs like Euphoria on that record, which I didn't include. 
but Red Doors and Memoir are pretty straightforward tunes for sure. Well, give us some more of your music, Chris. All right, well, we're probably going to move now to uh, new comics from The Wooded World, which is my most recent release. I put that out last summer. And I would say, for the most part, that this record is the first comfortable move I've made away from being uh, intentionally alternative. This record is loaded with kind of middle-of-the-road, straightforward production. Not that it's middle-of-the-road quality. It's really, really well done. I love it. But I'm not trying to take the audience on a deeply experimental or uh, alternative journey musically. The songs are much more biographic and less cryptic in the lyrics, for sure, hoping that it reaches people more. And and I really, you know, I've been working away from wordsmithing and trying to be much more... Uh, available in in my lyric writing for that reason, because I believe the song serves most when it does that. We're getting down to the end of our time. we got room for one more song. How would you like to conclude your song of the soul, Chris? I think it's a perfect place to conclude. Again, off the most recent record, the song that I'd like to end with is called Little Again. This is kind of a co-write with my nine-year-old daughter. She's nine now, but she helped me build this song when she was seven. And it came out of an experience she had years earlier where she saw her younger sister, who's now four, take her spot in her mother's bed shortly after her sister was born. She saw that the new baby was now getting an attention that she used to get, that she was no longer going to get, and felt this deep and an immediate pain when she realized that this, this was happening and it was kind of something had ended for her. She came to me with this idea that she wanted to be little again, and she was. It was a, a really funny idea in general because I considered her still little. It was kind of what I call her mid-childhood life crisis. <laughs> and the lyrics that, that you'll hear in the song were inspired by the conversation I had with her right after she had that realization. And the song is called "Little Again." We're going to conclude "Song of the Soul." Go out with this. I want to say, Chris, it's been wonderful getting to know you. I want to send that invite again out to all of the people in the community there, WGDR, to let me know about the other musicians in the area. You must have a lot of contact with them, working as station director as you do. So please, get more of those wonderful Vermont and other areas for musicians in my direction. Chris, thanks so much for joining me for Song of the Soul and doing the work of community radio. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Mark. This is Little Again by Chris Gruen. Follow the link from NordenSpiritRadio.org. You'll also find bonus excerpts from this interview that we weren't able to fit into the broadcast. Little Again, and we'll see you next week for Song of the Soul. Oh, how I wish I was still just a baby Sing to me, Daddy like you did way back then small in your arms warm milk and honey oh i want to be little again Didn't mean to hurt you Could I 
be that heavy that I can't jump and fall into your lap, onto your belly. Oh, I want to be little again. for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy Let in the light It will heal you And you can feel you And sing out a song of the soul